Uh, we're going to read verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 53 through to 65. Uh, Mark 14 from verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will make another, I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to death, but condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him. And to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to read, uh, to study your word together now, we ask that you would help us. We read this passage, this portion of scripture with a sense of distress that the Holy One would suffer such injustice. Yet you have done this for our good. You have done this to save a people for yourselves. This is deliberate. This is what you planned. And may we appreciate your work all the more for our time spent in your word together today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's not the the most hopeful passage to read in scripture right there, is it? It's pretty horrible, a lot of the things we've just read. Uh, last week, as we, uh, as we read through uh, Jesus going out to the Mount of Olives and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, I said that we're really beginning one of the darkest nights in human history. And I think that absolutely continues this week with what we've read today. It's a dark night, but it's a night that we desperately need to hear about to better appreciate the salvation that Christ won for us. Last week, we saw the events that took place in the Garden of Gethsemane where where Judas put into action his betrayal of Christ, which saw Christ arrested and the disciples flee. Uh, This week at verse 53, we pick up with Jesus having been arrested. Uh, The the disciples with him, not just the 12 apostles, but many have scattered, they've fled. Jesus is being led away. We begin with that at the start of our reading and perhaps we look at this and it looks as if human men, Wicked men, men come to do violence against God, who have come out with clubs and swords, as Mark describes it, have won. They've just beat Jesus. 
it looks as if evil is winning and about to finally win. But in all of this, we've got to remember a word we see pop up these days, I think it's been misused in superhero stuff, the precognition of Christ. He knew ahead of time the events that were going to happen. It's not recorded for us in Mark's Gospel, but it's recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, the divine healing of the high priest servants here. Peter struck at this guy, and as we said last week, we don't know whether he was a brilliant swordsman, perfectly aimed just to cut off somebody's ear if he's just slashing wildly. Regardless, Jesus just healed this guy's ear. No stitches, nothing, just healed. And Jesus has said in verse 49 of this chapter that the scripture was being fulfilled. Jesus is God. God is not being defeated. God's plan is unfolding. There are some horrible things about to come up. The things that come up shouldn't disgust us any less just because we know that this was part of God's plan for salvation. When we see the conduct of sinful men, when we see the the depravity of the human heart that does not love God, we should not feel any less disgusted and churned up inside when we read how they treated Jesus. But we should always read this in light of the comfort that God is working this for the good of his people, that his will will be done. So in that, with that in mind, uh, we, we, we start off, as I said, with Jesus being, being led. He's about to face the Sanhedrin. And something we need to remember about the timing of all of this is that this was at night. That might not mean much to us today. This was at night time. But at the time, for any legal proceeding to be considered legal, it had to occur during daylight hours. The sun had to be up. There is a serious breach of due process right from the beginning here. It begins on the way to court. Now, we do read that the disciples have scattered Uh, in the scattering apparently they didn't all go too far Peter at least was in close enough vicinity to follow this mob who had their swords and their clubs He, he followed from a safe distance and he even followed into the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was taken to face this we'll call it a court for the sake of it but it's not really any due process here whatsoever and he warmed himself by the fire with the servants now that sets us up for what we see next week which is further confirmation that Christ was able to know ahead of time the things that were going to happen. Christ prophesying Peter's denial is the next part of Mark's gospel that we can read from verse 66 to the end of the chapter. But we leave Peter there. Peter's in the courtyard, courtyard, Jesus is led inside and he's brought into a complete mockery of legal proceedings against him. You might have heard the phrase, a kangaroo court. When I was younger and I heard that, I thought that was when kangaroos were tried for misdemeanours of kicking other kangaroos without provocation. It's actually an expression used to describe what the dictionary calls an unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone well regarded, especially without good evidence, as guilty of a crime or misdemeanour. They're looking for a guilty trial and they're not following due process. I think that explains and describes exactly what we are looking at. This is a kangaroo court. 
from the beginning of the proceedings, I think that if anything, to call this a kangaroo court is not an overstatement, but an understatement. And it comes without a shred of a doubt. In verse 55, we have proof that this is one of the grossest miscarriages, or the grossest miscarriage of justice in the entirety of human history. The chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They did not seek testimony of the events that took place. They did not look for people who were there who could bring witness. They looked for people who deliberately took their perspective that Jesus had to be put to death. That was their agenda. Mark lays that out for us very clear. That the motive for what's happening is startlingly clear and it is abhorrent. They're not asking people who were present when Christ was ministering to to simply share what they had witnessed. Again, they're looking for witnesses to present this to their so-called court testimony that could only be considered damning to Christ. They only sought to put Jesus to death. What a horrible scene. They made their minds up. They had rejected God and they continue willfully in their rejection of God. They only sought to put Jesus to death and in come the witnesses. The witnesses come in. And it seems to be many witnesses lined up. Again, it shows us that they knew this was happening beforehand. Go back to the start of the chapter. They didn't want to arrest Jesus during the Passover, which was in about two days' time from that point, the way that's laid out in other Gospels. So they'd obviously had these witnesses prepared. This is part of a plan. They had these guys there. The witnesses were prepared. They knew their job. Say bad things about Jesus. But what they hadn't organised, despite having many people there to witness against Jesus, was getting the stories to line up. They just didn't line up the stories. You'd think that would be a crucial part in all of this. And no testimony agrees with another. What's Jesus said that's so incriminating? What has Jesus done that's so incriminating? We'll tell you all these horrible things, but nothing is condemning. Nothing sticks. Verse 56, many bore false witness. Nothing lines up from these witnesses. After a while, they move on to claims that Jesus has made himself. He said, destroy this temple made with human hands and build another without hands. This is what they say. Now, that's not exactly what Jesus said, is it? It has elements of what Jesus said earlier, but it's not what Jesus has said. It doesn't accurately portray what Jesus said. These people coming in, we don't know their names, but they are perjuring themselves before this supposed court of the law. They are standing here breaking the ninth commandment. As a church, we hold not only to the Westminster Confession of Faith as a subordinate standard, but the the Westminster Standards. And if you look at question 144 with what is prohibited by the ninth commandment, there is a huge list of things there. Single words separated by a comma mostly, And it goes on for a lot of lines in there. These guys are bearing false witness. They are perjuring themselves, not only 
before the people there, but before God, they are placing themselves in a spiritually dangerous position. So what they saw wasn't good enough testimony against Jesus. They turned to what Jesus had said. They still couldn't get anything to stick. Verse 59, the testimonies still didn't agree. They still can't get the story straight. We're left with a scene that is an absolute joke, but it's not over yet. The high priest stood up, and we know that right from the beginning, the high priest has been part of this. It is his servant who is close enough to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the high priest's house that they're led into because it's his courtyard where Peter waits in. The high priest stood up in their midst. And before we get to what he says, we should take special note of his office and the office of the others who are with him. We have the high priest, we have all the chief priests, the elders, so even if not all of them, enough of them that these are the, the senior representatives of the Israel, of the house of Israel, and the scribes. These so-called experts of the law are present. But this high priest, this is the one who would enter once a year into the Holy of Holies on behalf of God's people. He cannot even represent himself. He is not fulfilling his duties. This is the spiritual state of Israel that their leaders are completely and utterly abandoning them spiritually. Their leaders do not care about the spiritual health of their people. Their leaders care only about their comfort, their power, their privilege and their prestige. The witnesses have come in. Again, nothing's stuck. And he stands up and says, Jesus, what's your answer to all of this? Have you nothing to say? It's obvious from the way that Mark lays this out and the other gospel writers lay this out that because the testimonies don't even agree with each other, why would you even respond? The best defense at the moment is that the witnesses' testimonies are actually just so false. There is no need to say more. It's almost as if the high priest has reached a point in this mockery of a trial Okay, if the witnesses aren't going to get you to say something silly, we need you to incriminate yourself. We're going to stop talking to the witnesses. They're useless. Jesus, we need you to incriminate yourself. And just another note about the witnesses' testimony. Jesus has been in the public eye for three, perhaps three and a half years at this point in time. Not a single thing can be said against him. Not a single true thing can be said against Jesus. Not the slightest evidence of abusing the trust granted to him by his disciples and other followers. Not the slightest evidence that he has said or done anything that contradicts God and his holy word. I doubt the guys, in fact, I 100% believe the guys putting Jesus on trial right now could not say the same thing about themselves after three years in public eye. And honestly, I doubt if any of us could say the same thing as well. This is the holy, perfect Son of God. But again, the witnesses have failed. 
they want to condemn Jesus to death. When they finally get that point, they, they don't actually condemn Jesus to death at the end of verse 64. They condemned him to be deserving of death. It's an interesting phrase there in Mark, and it reminds us of the societal restrictions placed on even these leaders among God's people at the time. That because of Roman occupation, they could not administer the death penalty themselves. They were bound to obey Roman decisions on these things. And this is part of why they wanted the Messiah, to set them free from Roman oppression, so that they could be their own people again. They have the Messiah right here, the one who can set them free, not in the way they're expecting, as we've seen many times through Mark. They have the one here who can set them free, and they want to kill him. They say, we want the Messiah. They imposed further rules to God's law and said, we have to do all of these things if the Messiah is going to come and save us. They wanted it so badly that they bound themselves to almost joylessness in so many areas of life. How do you answer these things said about you? Jesus is silent. So they ask him again, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And not for the first time. We've seen in Mark's gospel, Jesus says that he is. He absolutely is the Son of God. He again attributes Daniel chapter 7 and the title of the Son of Man to himself. He is God. That is what Jesus says in this courtroom. That is all that Jesus says in this courtroom. And that is a testimony used to find him worthy of death. The truth was what upset them. There's been a trial where people have come in, many, many people have come in and bore false witness and we never see any hint of outrage that they would lie. They don't see the guilt where there is guilt, but they see guilt where there is rightness. Jesus is not wrong. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Blessed, and He has proven this over and over again. He has given tangible proof of His divinity. He has even, as I said earlier, healed right on the spot with no stitches the ear of a fellow who brought Him into this very room He's standing in. The high priest cries blasphemy blasphemy Christ is condemned to be worthy of death and they treat him most shamefully that passage of Isaiah chapter 50 particularly verse 6 comes true they blindfold him they slap him they ask him to prophesy who did it it's a horrendous scene. And sadly, we know that it gets worse. This is a truly horrendous sequence of events. As I said at the start, what we need to remember is that all of this is happening in accordance with Scripture. It shows us, though, just how hard human hearts can be 
we can say we want something so badly that when we have it in front of us, if it doesn't look exactly the way we want it to, we miss it. It's like saying we want that dream car. We want the Ferrari. It arrives on our front door, but it's black, not red, and we don't recognise it. This is the sort of thing that's going on here. They want the Messiah. They needed the Messiah, just as we need a Messiah to save us from sin. He came, he is before them, and they reject him, they condemned him as worthy of death. They, they were so limited, even with all of their titles and influence and the, 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 the attention they got from the people, they were so limited in what they could do because of Roman oppression. They were crying out for salvation, apparently they were anyway, and the one who came to save is right here, but they want salvation on their terms because they want the credit for it. Look what we facilitated. Look what we worked out for ourselves. Aren't we so wonderful that we added to God's rules, that we added to God's law, and we got the people over the line? We need to be careful that when we do ask God for blessings, when we do ask for things from God, that we don't look for it to fit just our perception of it. If any here isn't saved and you're looking for salvation, don't look for it to fit your perception of what it's meant to look like. Jesus was absolutely an authoritative figure. He was an authoritative and a compelling teacher. He, he was a worker of miracles. But as soon as he said and, and rightly said, yes, I am the Messiah, they condemned him to death. We should not project our expectations of how God is going to work onto God. Salvation is in Christ and no one and nothing else. Salvation does not come on our terms and we definitely cannot take any credit for it. The only credit we can take when it comes to salvation is our need to be saved from our sin. Not the sort of credit we should want to take, but the sort of thing we should own up for still. Salvation is the free gift of God's boundless grace. Praise God that he delivered it for us so that we might live. Praise God that Christ endured this so that every single person that the Father gave to him would not be lost. If you have faith in him, praise him because that faith is a means by which we are saved. Faith isn't just sitting here on Sundays. We know from the book of James that faith without works is dead. It must be an active faith. But if we have that, then we have life because Christ gave his for us. We should never, ever limit God to meeting our expectations. These people seemed familiar with Jesus. And they reject him, maybe in part for some of them, because they're overly familiar with him. Others reject him because they don't like that they have to submit to him and his authority. What we see here is a desperate need to accept him for who he is. He is God. 
He is our Lord and our Saviour. He is mighty to save and saving us from sin is what all of this that we've just read was done for. So we should love him more. Again, we should, we should grieve when we see the absolute depravity of fallen human hearts who don't like to have our own little thrones challenged. But we should rejoice in the holiness of God. No charge could stand against him. Rejoice that he suffered and died for sin when we could not do that ourselves. And rejoice because he lives. Because he lives, we do too. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for even this part of scripture that makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable. We know that if you had not saved us from sin, that we would have treated you even more shamefully than those present did at the time. Your grace, your mercy, and your kindness to us is astounding. We are amazed that you reached down into the muddy depths in which we considered ourselves content before knowing you, and you pulled us out, that you washed us, and that because Jesus suffered these things, and more, and he died on the cross and rose back to life, that we have righteousness bestowed upon us. Lord God, help us to cherish this. Help us to love you more and help us to see your glory and your glory shared in every way that we can. We ask this in Christ.